This morning we continue on in our consideration of the Old Testament book of Exodus. So if you remember the plot up to this point, back in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, God made a promise to a man named Abram, uh, telling him that he would give him many descendants, that his descendants would one day inherit the land of Canaan, and that through Abram's family, God would bless all the nations. So when the book of Exodus opens, Abram's descendants uh, have become numerous, uh, but they are enslaved in the land of Egypt. Uh, The Lord raises up Moses uh, to deliver them from bondage, and by sending plagues and parting the Red Sea, he brings uh, Abram, later called Abraham's descendants, out of slavery with a mighty hand. In Exodus chapter 19, The people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, arrive at Mount Sinai where they meet with the Lord. He gives them his law in the form of Ten Commandments. So we finished thinking about those together last week. And so now it's on to what's next. And that what's next is a series of rules governing specific issues that would arise in the life of the nation of Israel. And if we're being completely honest... A lot of what's next is going to seem pretty strange to us. Uh, We're used to the Ten Commandments. They feel ancient but still relevant. Don't murder. Don't lie. Honor your parents. Uh, But when it comes to this section of Scripture from Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, uh, all the way to Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, it's a bit harder to know exactly what to do with what we see. So in this passage, we have laws about what to do if your ox gores someone else's ox, how to handle it when an angry master knocks out a slave's tooth, or the proper procedure when someone is donkey-sitting for you and your animal dies on their watch. So it's going to seem like some of these laws are pretty weird and maybe even irrelevant to us. But even more than just being strange, I think it's worth noting that laws like the ones we're going to consider this morning, they're the reason why a lot of people feel like the Bible can't be God's word to us. So one of the common objections people register against the idea that the Bible is God's revelation of himself is that it it seems to condone all sorts of horrible things. So if you have a Bible open, if you look at Exodus chapter 21, my guess is that the heading above Exodus 21 in your Bible says something like laws about slaves. And so we're left thinking, who needs laws about slaves? Right? The only law you need is don't have slaves. Right? Chapter 21, it seems like, it seems like God's condoning something that we all know is wicked. Now add into the fact that in this section we have laws about how much someone has to pay if they seduce a young woman but don't marry her. Uh, where you can hide if you kill someone. Right? It seems like this, this part of the Bible isn't really worthy of our attention, let alone our, our reverence or obedience. It, it seems like it may even be reason not to believe that the Bible is, in fact, God's word. And so we're going to work our way through these chapters this morning, and we won't have enough time to read every verse, but I'm going I'm to try and pull out enough to give you the sense with a clear conscience. I don't think I've avoided anything that uh, is, is uh, strange or hard to talk about. And at the, at the outset of our time, let me just give you a couple of thoughts that I think will help us as we, as we dive into these verses. So three thoughts that I think will kind of give us uh, some guidance here. First, as we come to a passage like this, we have to acknowledge 
that there is a massive cultural difference between the world that these laws are being addressed to and the world in which we live. So I think most of the unhelpful applications of these verses, both by Christians and also by people who are, who are critical of the Bible, begin with a failure to come to grips with the distance between our culture and theirs. Right? These laws are being spoken to a very different place and a very different time. Right? Just think for a second about how different our world, so Northern Virginia, 2022, think about how different our world is even from the world in which our grandparents lived. Right? Think about how many things about our lives, the way we think, the assumptions we have about life and the world. Think about how different many of those things are from even what our grandparents would have thought and assumed. Think about how much of our life would make no sense to them. Think about how much of their lives and their assumptions about life would make little sense to us. And now think about the fact that these things that we read about in the book of Exodus happened 3,500 years ago. This is a completely different world. And what that means is not that these things are irrelevant, but it means we need to be careful and we need to be humble about how we approach these laws and how we understand them and how we apply them. Or we need to understand what they meant in their context rather than assuming that we understand everything that's going on on the first read. So if something seems strange or if something seems off in these verses, rather than jumping to the conclusion that this part of the Bible can't possibly be true or helpful, uh, we should wait and see if there's some other way uh, that they could be understood. So we'll get into that more as we go along, but just let me just get that out there at the outset. Second, I think it's helpful for the interpretation of this section to note that these laws seem to be sort of specific ways of applying the Ten Commandments to the life of Israel. So to give you just a few examples, there in chapter 22, if you look at verse 28, it says, you shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So that, that instruction seems to be clearly connected to the third commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain. It seems also to be connected to the fifth commandment about showing proper respect to God-given authority there yeah, in the fifth commandment, your parents. Uh, another example in chapter 23, verse 1, uh, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness, right? Clearly related to the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. Then in chapter 23, verse 13, uh, the Lord says, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. It seems to be clearly connected to the first and second commandment about worshiping the Lord only and worshiping him in the way uh, that he's approved. So pretty much everything about these laws that we're going to consider this morning is, is connected to or even is a specific application of one of the Ten Commandments. So even some of the stranger, sort of more seemingly random commandments, like chapter 22, verse 19, with the prohibition against sleeping with animals, or the very last verse in our passage, which, which warns the Israelites against boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, they seem to be addressing not just random situations, but actually the way that the Canaanites worshipped their false gods. It's not just that those things are wrong, but they, they represent a way that Israel would be tempted to worship like the nations around them. And so the Lord is raising these issues in light of the first and second commandment, regulating proper worship. So I think having that idea that really every one of these commandments is connected in some way to, a, to one of the Ten Commandments will give us some hooks to hang these things on. 
These are not random instructions, uh, but these are specific applications uh, of what we've seen already in chapter 20. And then third, third thought. As we examine these laws, what we're going to do is look at them for what the reformers and what the Puritans uh, called the general equity of the Mosaic law. The general equity. So when we talk about the general equity of the Mosaic law, we're talking about the sort of universally applicable and binding moral principles that are contained in specific laws. So we might talk about the particular equity of a law. That's the specific application of a law to its place in time. Right? That's the obvious purpose. If your ox gores somebody else's ox, give them two oxes. Right? That's particular equity. That's, the, that's what the law says. But the general equity would be the, the principle, the sort of long-term, always applicable moral principle that, that stands behind that particular law. So if you think about our laws, right, Northern Virginia 2022, think about our laws against speeding. The particular equity of the law is that you can only drive 25 miles an hour on North York Road. But if you think through maybe 500 years into the future, uh, maybe there is some future time where people no longer drive cars and that law has no real particular application. The general equity of the law is that you ought to conduct yourself in a way that's safe both for yourself and for others. That's a sort of general timeless principle that finds its particular expression in a 25 mile an hour speed limit. So when we come to Exodus chapter 20 to 23, we're gonna look at a lot of laws that don't apply to us anymore, right? That aren't meant to, meant to govern our conduct as a church or even the United States as a nation, right? So if your ox gores someone else's ox, we have laws to handle that. I don't know what they are, I don't know what you would do, but, but the United States has laws that are, I don't know if they're good or not, but they're sufficient, right? We don't go to the Bible and say, all right, so you, know, you have to do X, Y, and Z for me. Right? We have laws and we have ways of handling that. But it's not to say that we're wasting our time this morning by looking at these instructions. Right? There is something for us to learn and that something is the general equity of the law. These specific rules might not have an application to us directly, but they do give a concrete expression to God's will. And that will applies throughout time and space. So each of these rules, as we're going to see, is built on a foundation of God's character and God's will for human beings. And so again, while the specific application for oxen that gore people uh, might, might not apply to us, there is a, a timeless principle uh, that we can use. So what I want to do is, is look through this section and give you four principles uh, that we see being expressed in these laws. So four uh, sort of examples of the, the general equity uh, of this uh, section of Scripture. So four things. Uh, first, in these laws, we see a concern for justice. So justice, that's the first one. And we see this in quite a few places in this passage. So if you look at chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, we read there that the Lord says to Moses, Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them, them being the people. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. 
But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Okay, so on the face of it, that sounds pretty bad. Why is the Bible endorsing buying slaves? It seems like splitting up families and piercing ears with, with awls. But I think this is where you have to understand the context in order to make sense of what we read. Because if you import the, everything that we as people living in Northern Virginia in 2022 think when we read the word slave, if you import all of that back into this passage, then in fact this is pretty bad. But the fact is, the, the slavery that's being discussed here is, is really nothing like what was practiced in the United States up until the 19th century, right? This passage, we should admit, has been wrongly used by Christians in the past, particularly Southern Baptist Christians, to justify that kind of terrible chattel slavery. But as you see here in, in this passage, that kind of slavery that was practiced in the United States where someone was, was kidnapped and then sold as a permanent possession to someone else. That, that kind of slavery is actually expressly condemned in this passage. So if you look in chapter 21, verse 16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Down in verse 20, or um, yeah, chapter 21, verse 20, we read this. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hands, he shall be avenged. Right? It's clear that the, the servant's life was not his master's property. He was not at liberty to do whatever he wanted with this slave. There in verses 26 to 27, we, we see that if the master knocks out his slave's eye or even his tooth, he had to be set free. Right? This is very different than the way slavery was practiced in the United States. For that reason, I think the translation here might be a bit unhelpful. Uh, the word that's used throughout this section here in Hebrews 21 is the Hebrew word abed, and it, it simply means servant. So, for example, it's the word used in Isaiah 53 of the, the suffering servant of the Lord. So slave is, is a legitimate translation, but I think that word is so pregnant with meaning for us as sort of modern readers that it might not be helpful. I think the word servant might be a bit more accurate in terms of getting the, the meaning. Uh, this sort of slavery in Israelite society functioned as a kind of social safety net. Right? This was a world without social security, without unemployment insurance, without welfare. So if you were poor or if you were deeply in debt, you really didn't have a lot of options. And so for many, slavery like this was a way out of poverty. A person could willingly enter into the service of someone else in exchange for food and shelter and, and even financial help to get out of debt. Uh, slavery was not meant to be a permanent situation. So there again in chapter 21, verse 2, you see that clearly. At the end of six years of service, uh, the servant had to be offered their freedom. Right? If they so enjoyed their time that they wanted to make that a permanent arrangement, there was a provision to do that. But it was the, the servant's choice, not the master's. I think as I was trying to figure out if we have a kind of modern analogy, the best, the best thing I could come up with was the idea of military service. I think about the way that the military functions as a way of poverty, or a way out of poverty uh, for many people in this country. Right? If you don't have many options, if you don't know what to do next, there is a, a way out through the military. You have a period of time for which you're committed, 
And in that time, everything is provided for you by the military. You're obligated to go where the military tells you to go, to do what the military tells you to do. But there are also rules in place about how you're treated. After your service commitment is completed, you can move on with your life or you can commit for longer. Right? Maybe there's a bit of an analogy there with how service worked uh, in Israelite society. But I think the best way to understand the laws that God is giving here to his people is that they express a concern for justice and fairness. Right? You see that in verse 3 of the passage I read earlier. If a man is married when he enters into service, his wife has to be allowed to leave with him. But there in verse 4, if the master gives him a wife from among his household, well, then they were to stay with him. Uh, that doesn't mean that the family was separated. The man could always stay in, in the service to his employer, or, or he could stay in the area when he was released. But the master wasn't disadvantaged either by, by losing people from his household. Uh, there in verses 5 and 6, as we said, there's a provision for making the arrangement permanent if the situation is so advantageous for the servant. There in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 21, you see instructions for protecting female servants who would be particularly vulnerable. They're never to be sold, the Lord says, to foreign nations. Right? If, if the servant marries into the family, she's to be treated like a daughter. Right? If the master fails to fulfill his obligations to her, she's to be released from service. Right? There in verse 20 of chapter 21, we see the, the life of a slave was valuable. The master is not allowed to take it. I think the big picture here is that these laws were intended to regulate how slavery worked, making sure that owners don't abuse or mistreat their servants, making sure that they were treated justly. Think for a second about how important that would have been to the people of Israel. Right? It might seem strange that coming off the high of the Ten Commandments, the very first thing the Lord wants to do is to talk to them about how they're going to practice slavery. But remember, they had been slaves in Egypt. Remember, they had been terribly mistreated. And so the Lord is telling his people here, look, I've redeemed you. I've called you out of that. I haven't, I haven't brought you out of that so you could just practice the exact same thing uh, with one another in the land in which I'm sending you. And the Lord uh, wants them to treat one another with justice. I think we see this concern for justice in other parts of the passage as well. In chapter 22, if you look at verses 16 to 17, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Again, another passage that seems very strange to us. Uh, but marriage in that culture was very different than the way we think about marriage now. It might seem very odd to those of us raised in the West. Maybe not so much to our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia. But marriage then wasn't a matter of sort of finding your soulmate and falling in love. It was an arrangement with primarily social and financial implications. So if a man sleeps with a young woman, he would significantly impact her chances of getting married to someone else. And that would have a great economic impact on a family. And so he was obligated to pay her dowry and marry her. Or if her father would not permit the marriage, he still had to pay that bride price that they would have expected. The idea is that a person shouldn't do such a thing, but if you do, there needs to be justice. Uh, he would need to make the family and the young woman whole. He had to do what was right. Uh, another concern for justice is there in chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. 
It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. So the Lord tells his people not to oppress a sojourner. This would be a foreigner. This would be an immigrant amongst the people of Israel, a person without any family or cultural connections, a person that was particularly vulnerable to exploitation and mistreatment. The Lord tells them not to mess with widows or fatherless children, again, the most vulnerable people in society. The Lord reminds them that up until recently they had been sojourners in Egypt and that he takes the mistreatment of the the weak and the needy very personally. And so he threatens to avenge them with the strongest kind of justice there in verses 23 and 24. Right? If you oppress the widow, I will make your wife a widow. If you oppress the, the orphan, I will make your children orphans. There in, verse, or in chapter 23, verses 2 to 3, the Lord says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. You see, the Lord is concerned with justice. And here, justice looks like the protection of the weak and vulnerable, right? The the weak and vulnerable being protected from exploitation and mistreatment by the powerful, right? And interestingly enough, there in verse 3, he says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. He says, look, don't, don't side with a rich guy against a poor man. And we might think, okay, well, that sounds right. But the Lord says, well, actually, don't side with a poor man either in his lawsuit. What the Lord cares about is not sort of parties and, and uh, sort of sides and teams, but rather justice. Now, justice is people receiving proper treatment, no matter who they are, whether they're rich or poor. So in his classic book, The City of God, Augustine of Hippo, uh, an early church, African church leader, he wrote this. He said, justice is a virtue distributing to everyone his due. He says, it's not that which is profitable to the greatest. Right, we might say, might doesn't make right. right. That's part of the general equity of this part of the law. The expression is going to be different in our culture. We don't have institutions like servanthood. We don't have arranged marriages like they did in that culture. But this principle that God is concerned that his people do what is just and right Well, that very much applies to us. We, as God's people, should be just in our dealings, right? If you are in a position of authority, you should not show favoritism. If you're an employer, you should pay your employees what they deserve. If you're an employee, you should do for your employer what he's paying you to do. And I think in our wider society as well, we should be people who are concerned for justice. We should want to see the most vulnerable and easily exploited people in our society cared for and protected, whether that's the immigrant, the unborn child, the trafficking victim, the low-wage worker. The problem is that our society is often fractured along partisan lines. And so it's very easy for people to care more about the interests of their group or their people 
than real justice. So at the risk of putting my finger on a nerve, right, if I can give you a painful example, take the response that people have uh, when a young black man is killed by a police officer. Some people rush to condemn the police officer, concluding that he must be racist. Still others will rush to defend the police officer, concluding that this young man must have done something to deserve what happened. But as Christians, we shouldn't be concerned to advance one narrative or another. We shouldn't be concerned about which side comes out looking better. We should be concerned with the truth, with justice. We should want the truth to be known. We should want appropriate action to be taken against those who do wrong. We should want the innocent to be protected, no matter who winds up looking good or bad or whose interests are advanced in the end. I fear that too many Christians are just like the world when it comes to sort of blindly rooting for our political interests. Right? God is interested in justice. He's interested in the truth, and so must we be. Okay, the second form of general equity that we see in this passage is the idea of proportionality. That is to say, punishment should fit the crime. The intention of the person who commits a crime certainly matters. Uh, if you look there in chapter 21, verses 12 to 14, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. You see the idea of proportionality here. If you kill someone, you deserve to die. Verse 13 there is a little bit hard to understand when it says, if God lets him fall into his hand. Uh, it does seem to be a way of indicating that if the death is in some way accidental, not premeditated. In that case, if you accidentally killed someone, the Lord was, uh, was going to establish cities of refuge, places with altars where, where people in those cases could flee to avoid sort of vengeful family members. But we're reminded there at the end in verse 14 that, that intentional killers, people who, who laid in wait and killed by cunning, they weren't permitted to take asylum. The punishment for taking someone else's life is your own life. Uh, a few verses later, we read there in verses 18 and 19, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoor with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Again, notice the punishment for injuring someone in a fight. You have to pay their medical bills. You have to, you have to compensate them for their lost time at work. Right? The punishment is in line with the crimes. Right? You have to provide for the healing of the wounds that you inflicted. You have to pay for the income uh, that you've caused this person to lose. Right? It's very proportional. It's nothing more, nothing less. Again, all throughout chapter 21, we see this principle. In verse 33, we read a situation about where a man digs a pit. Right? If you dig a pit in a world without outdoor lighting, you better put a cover on the pit so someone doesn't wander into it. If you dig a pit there in chapter 21, verse 33, and you fail to cover it, and an animal falls in, well, then you have to pay the owner of the animal what he's lost. But you get to keep the dead animal. Right? It's fair. 
In verse 35 of chapter 21, if your ox kills someone else's ox, well, you're going to sell the ox that's still alive and split the money. And then you split the dead ox with the other guy as well. Unless, of course, there in verse 36, if, you, if your ox is always goring things and you should have known better and you should have done something about it, well, in that case, the deal isn't so good. You get the dead ox and your neighbor gets the living one. Right? Again, it's fair. It's proportional. In chapter 22, verse 1, if you steal an animal and you kill it or sell it, uh, you have to pay back fivefold or fourfold, depending on what kind of animal it is. If you're caught with the animal and the animal's still alive and it's in your possession, then you have to give it back and pay double. In verse 5 of chapter 22, if you ruin your neighbor's fields or crops, you have to pay him back from the very best of your crops. In verse 6, if someone burns down their neighbor's grain or, or their field, you have to make a full restitution. Right? You get the point that the general equity here, the idea that undergirds the specific sort of instance of the law, uh, is that justice should be proportional. So parents, we could say that you should work hard to make sure that your punishment, your discipline of your children isn't overly harsh. Right? You don't want to model God's character to them by coming down on them like a ton of bricks over a relatively minor offense or even just ordinary childishness. Those who are in authority in the workplace should make sure that workers are not severely punished for minor offenses. Those who are involved in law, law enforcement or in the courts should strive to see that crimes are addressed in ways that are consistent and proportional to their severity. Uh, we don't want to be marked as individuals or as a society by vindictiveness or vengeance, but we should want to see proportional justice done. Okay, so moving along the third form then of general equity that we see in this passage is the idea of love and mercy. Be relatively brief on this. It's important, not too hard to understand. If, if justice is about people getting what they deserve, well, that's good and right, but it's not the only thing that God values. Uh, what we see in this section is that justice must be tempered with mercy and love and compassion. So there in chapter 22, we read starting in verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You see the principle. Don't charge interest to a poor man who can't afford it. If your neighbor gives you his cloak as collateral, well, Give it back to him at the end of the night, even if he hasn't paid you back yet. Otherwise, he's going to freeze. Right? We might think that justice means that you say, tough luck. We're just going to do what's fair. Right? right is right, fair is fair. But what we see here is that the Lord is not only just, but he is also compassionate. And so he calls on his people to treat one another with compassion. So we read there in chapter 23, starting in verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So here, you imagine a situation where you discover your enemy's misfortune. Right? You have it within your power to do him harm simply by doing nothing. Right? But the law says if you see his donkey wandering away, even if he's your enemy, you take it back to him. Right, if you see your enemy's donkey struggling under a burden, right? so the picture here is that, that this donkey has been loaded up. It's maybe too much of a burden. He's struggling with it. The, the man who hates you is trying to, to fix it, but it's, it's too big a job. The law says go and help him. Right now is not the time for petty grievances. Uh, someone needs your help. That donkey needs your help at the very least. And then a few verses later in chapter 23, verses 10 to 12, It says, for six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the fields may eat. You shall likewise do with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed." We've already seen there's a kind of Sabbath principle in place for servants, right? Six years of service, in the seventh, they get freedom. Now we see a similar principle for the land. Six years of sowing and harvesting, and a seventh year of rest. Uh, During that seventh year, that meant the poor basically took ownership of the land. They could come in, they could harvest the grain that grew naturally. They could harvest the olives and the the grapes uh, that were growing. Of course, that Same principle applies to work, right? This is consistent with what we saw in the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath. The purpose there was six days you work, and on the seventh day, everybody rests, right? The the wealthy, the powerful, they have the the means to rest on their own. Uh, But the idea is that the poor, the the son of your servant, uh, these people, the sojourner, uh, they get rest as well. They're the objects of God's compassion as well. And so the lesson here is that we owe to others more than what they deserve. We must meet the needs of our brothers and sisters as we're able. We owe others love and care. And so God hardwires love and compassion and mercy into the law that he gives to his people. And that brings us then to the fourth and final thing for us to see in these laws this morning. And that is that the the, the law calls God's people to gratitude for their redemption. Gratitude to God for what he's done to save them. These laws are really nothing less than God teaching his people how to live in light of their deliverance. Right? God has delivered them from slavery. He's called them out to be his people. And now he wants them to live in ways that are consistent with his character. He is just. So he wants them to act with justice towards one another. He is loving and compassionate And so he wants them to be merciful as well. And we see in this passage that the idea is that the people of God would be shaped and formed in their life together, in their emotions, by the salvation that they've received. So if you look there back in chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. 
An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And God reminds them there that he doesn't want them making any images of him. Right? I don't want images of silver or gold. Right? That's the second commandment. Instead, he wants them to offer sacrifices that are acceptable. A little bit later on, he says, Look, don't cut out stones and build an altar. Right? I don't want you even sort of flirting with the way the pagans worship. But the, the idea here is that God's people would hear him speak to them. Right? He says, you yourselves know I've spoken to you from heaven. And that they would respond with worship, with offerings, with sacrifices. There in chapter 23, at the end of our passage, it says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Then just a few verses later down in verse 19, it says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You see, at the beginning of this section of laws, the people of Israel are, are given instructions for worship. And at the end of this sort of section of laws, the people of Israel are given instructions for worship. I think we're meant to see those bookends as, as somewhat being the point, the point of the justice, the point of the, the proportionality, the point of the, of the, of the love and compassion. Right? They're meant to worship in response to all that God had done. So there in chapter 23, there are three appointed feast times in the Israelite calendar. There's the feast of unleavened bread in the month of Abib, the month in which they left Egypt. There's the Feast of Harvest, where they celebrate the first fruits of, of the harvest and look forward to what will come. And then there's the Feast of Ingathering, when the harvest is complete, celebrating God's provision. The idea is that the Israelites would have regular ways of remembering and celebrating and giving thanks for all that God had done for them. Right? You can understand the importance of these kinds of landmarks on the calendar. Times for the people of Israel to stop and to be reminded of what is so easy to lose track of in the grind of daily life, that the Lord had been good to them, that he is a God of justice and mercy, that he's a God who spoke to them from heaven. Without these appointed means, it might be possible for Israel to begin to take their salvation, their deliverance from Egypt, the, the provision that God was giving to them. It might be possible for them to take all of that for granted, in which case their lives would not be shaped by their redemption, but they'd be shaped by the world around them and the, the drumbeat of daily life. And so what does that mean for us then? Well, I think it means that we want to be a people who are shaped by our experience of salvation. We want to be conformed to the likeness and character of God. We want to be people who are passionate about justice and mercy, just as the Lord is. And I think these bookends of worship and thanksgiving and, and sort of offering up to the Lord uh, gifts, the, these bookends, I think, are meant to help remind the people of Israel to do just that. And I think we need to be regularly reminded of our salvation. 
so that we can respond with love and gratitude and worship, so that we can be people marked by justice and compassion. The people of Israel experienced salvation as deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They celebrated it with these feasts here in chapter 23. Brothers and sisters, we've experienced an even greater salvation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came, the greater Moses, to lead us out of bondage. Not bondage to Pharaoh, but bondage to the power and penalty of our sin. Every human being stands guilty before God because of our sin. But in love, God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to die for us so that we might have eternal life. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to his heavenly father, utterly just, perfectly compassionate. And he died on a cross as a substitute for us, taking our punishment, serving as a sacrifice in our place. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and now he lives and he offers eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him. Friends, those of us who have experienced this kind of salvation have received something far greater than the people of Israel received. And not surprisingly, the Lord has given us a way to remember, a way to respond and to celebrate what God has done for us. We don't celebrate these feasts that are listed out there for the people of Israel in chapter 23. These were feasts that that pointed back to a, a redemption that we've not experienced. Right? Instead, and perhaps not surprisingly, the Lord has given us a different way to remember, a different way to respond to what he's done for us. Right? In the Lord's Supper, we stop and we remember. We come and we commune with the, the risen Lord Jesus by faith. We allow the reality of his broken body and his shed blood to define us, to be our identity, to give the shape that we need to our days and our weeks. Right? Every Sunday, we keep this appointed feast together as a church family. And in so doing, we're living out the, the general equity of the Old Testament law, being formed into the character of our Lord and remembering his salvation with thanks. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's come to the table now. Let's celebrate our salvation together, just as the people of Israel celebrated theirs so many thousands of years ago. But first, let's pray. Father, we love you. We delight in your character. We see your great concern for justice. We rejoice that you are no respecter of persons that you look on the inward heart, that you want mercy and compassion and truthfulness from your people. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be shaped and marked by our redemption. And we pray that you would help us uh, to love and to celebrate all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. As we come uh, to his table now, we ask that you would give us grace, that you would help us to come in faith, that you would cause us to remember and to rejoice. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.